Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. The numbers will increase, but they will not increase, we hope, uh, uh, to catastrophic, further catastrophic proportions. We just don't know yet. Extent of heartbreaking losses becoming clearer in Maui fires. New evacuations as Canada's record wildfire season rages on. Plus, instead of exporting American jobs, we're creating American jobs, exporting American products. One year later, the Inflation Reduction Act is turbocharging a U.S. clean energy boom. All of those booms and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. This legislation they oppose or attack is now the greatest thing to come to their states. You have Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, the very quiet lady from Georgia. Well, she's talked about what Biden's doing is what Roosevelt did, what Kennedy did. Well, yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, more grim news out of Hawaii today, but at least the bad news is slowing down a bit. Uh, That's a good way of looking at it. As we go to air on Maui, Hawaii, the death toll has surpassed 110 and is still rising. Downed power lines are under new scrutiny as a potential ignition source. Amid massive mobilization of resources for search, recovery, and relief efforts, FEMA estimates it will take many years to rebuild the destroyed town of Lahaina at a cost upwards of $5.5 billion. Preliminary insurance industry estimates put total economic loss and damage from the fires as high as $10 billion. The Maui fires destroyed nearly 3,000 structures, the vast majority residential, worsening the pre-existing affordable housing crisis on the island. Survivors say they are already being approached by developers wanting to buy land where their homes once stood. You know, many, of course, think of Hawaii as a paradise, but the fact is, over the past 20 or so years, according to AP, Disasters like this, thanks in no small part to climate change, have sort of gone through the roof on Hawaii. Canada is also still grappling with a record wildfire season intensified by extreme heat and dryness. The government of the Northwest Territories declared a state of emergency this week due to multiple out-of-control wildfires that completely obliterated the rural town of Enterprise and now threaten the territorial capital of Yellowknife. There's no relief from the unprecedented heat that is intensifying the fires in Canada. Parts of British Columbia broke new all-time high records this week for the month of August, topping 106 degrees. Portland, Oregon this week also set a new all-time high August temperature record of 108 degrees. That's about 25 degrees hotter than normal. The last time Portland, Oregon was this hot was during a 1 in 10,000 year heat wave that hit two years ago. As the pace of costly climate change intensified extreme weather disasters accelerates, climate solutions are also gaining speed. Good. One year ago this week, President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act, the largest single climate investment in U.S. history after a long and very difficult struggle. Experts say the Inflation Reduction Act has already been a game changer for the clean energy sector in America, but experts say it has also spurred other countries to boost their climate investments to compete. 
compete. So not only a game changer here in the U.S., but a game changer around the world. Yes. However, a recent poll found most Americans are unaware of the law's profound impact. Seventy percent say that they've heard little or nothing at all about the Inflation Reduction Act since it was signed into law. The IRA invests $370 billion over 10 years to accelerate renewable energy projects, increase domestic clean energy manufacturing and electric vehicle manufacturing, and boost electrification, including the first major incentives for homeowners to transition away from polluting fossil fuels. According to new analyses, the climate law has spurred a factory-building frenzy in the U.S., more than $110 billion in new private sector clean energy manufacturing plants, including the nation's first solar panel recycling plant. Nearly 200,000 new jobs in the clean energy sector alone. That has spurred others like the European Union and India to boost investment in their own domestic clean tech industries. President Biden, in a tour of a wind energy plant in Milwaukee, Wisconsin this week, noted that all congressional Republicans voted against the Inflation Reduction Act as he highlighted the surge in clean energy jobs and U.S. manufacturing. We're investing in America. According to Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, my plan is leading to a boom, they call a boom in manufacturing and manufacturing investment, as you're seeing right here in this factory. A building boom, a manufacturing boom, a jobs boom, a clean energy boom. Sounds like a good idea to me. For much more on all of these booms and the ones we couldn't get to today, Check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and site formerly known as Twitter at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report. By stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Real interfaith relations is about action. It's about doing something. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in New York City. And talking is important, don't get me wrong. But if it stops at talking, nothing happens. On the week of August 14th, thousands gathered in Chicago, Illinois, for the Parliament of the World's Religions. Faith and secular leaders from around the globe joined to amplify the theme of this year's convening, a call to conscience, defending freedom and human rights. This week on State of Belief, I want to share some of the conversations I was able to have with notable attendees, longtime friends and new friends alike. Thank you for listening to State of Belief. To get these important conversations in front of more people who need to hear them, we've partnered with Religion News Service, the leading religion journalism organization in the country. And as part of the RNS family of podcasts, there is a next generation podcast I want to make sure you're subscribed to. Please visit stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. Cardinal Supich, thank you so much for being with us here on State of Belief. So we are at the Parliament of the World's Religions, and 
If you could have your prayer answered after this parliament ends, what would the world look like and uh, what would happen after people leave here and go back to their respective communities? Well, my hope would be that the entire world would see that our gathering uh, is a model for how we should deal with diversity and difference in the world. So often uh, the discussions become so very polarizing where we stop listening to one another simply because we've made judgments already about other people and their positions. So hopefully this will be a, a great symbol to the world of what can be done when people do sit down and dialogue with one another and listen to each other with great respect. Uh, that's what this uh, assembly is about, making sure that we have um, uh, an appeal to people's conscience that uh, we need to learn by learning together and listening to each other. So uh, that would be my hope and aspiration. And can you explain to the listeners um, kind of the Catholic theology of interfaith work and what guides it and keeps it as a North Star? Well, it, I think it's anchored uh, in the creation scene uh, from the very beginning of the Genesis account where God uh, created uh, humanity uh, to be in God's image and likeness, and so that uh, there is an understanding in the Catholic faith that God is one, is united, there is a unity there. So humanity as well needs to aspire to that kind of unity and uh, realize that God uh, sent his son into the world, uh, according to our Christian theology, uh, to save everyone, to save uh, the whole, all of humanity. And uh, that is why I think Pope Francis uh, is, is time and again reminding us that uh, we have to uh, keep in mind uh, that everyone uh, needs to be included uh, in God's plan of salvation. And uh, that is really uh, a, a, an aspiration that we have in the Catholic faith, that the Lord, uh, the Lord is the Lord of life for all of us. And uh, we can begin by working together to discover how to complete that plan. That is absolutely beautiful. Um, right now, there is so much division. I mean, you work in the American setting um, within the Catholic Church, but more broadly within the American populace, there is a great deal of division. What what gives you hope when you think about the future of our country and and how we can continue to nurture our democracy, nurture a community where all people can be heard and all people could be together? I think by the very fact that we're identifying this as a problem is an important uh, insight. And whenever I go, I, I hear people tell me that they're tired of the polarization, the division. But I guess the real uh, sign of hope for me is my dialogue and interaction with young people. Uh, they, uh, in fact, sometimes turn away from religious organizations because they see them as a place where polarization takes place and don't want anything to do with a group of people who, in fact, add to the polarization. My hope would be that all, all faiths, and especially the faith of the Catholic Church here in Chicago that I'm responsible for, would always make sure that we send the message to young people that uh, we don't want any part of that polarization and uh, that uh, we, we do need the hope and, and aspirations of young people today to be a part of uh, changing uh, the, the culture that we have today that's filled with polarization. So that's where my hope is, that the young people today are going to teach us a lot about unity and the importance of working together. 
I, it's amazing. I ask about hope with almost all of the people I interview, and everybody is actually hopeful about young people, which is counter narrative. A lot of like, it's oh, young people. When will they learn? But actually, young people are doing amazing work out there, and I, I, I really appreciate you pointing that out. One of the phenomenons that a lot of us see out there is a kind of blending of nationalism with the Christian faith, which can lead to some people outside of the Christian identity and even some of us within the Christian identity to feel like we're relegated to a secondary class status unless we adhere to particular beliefs. Um, Some of us call this Christian nationalism. Is that something that you think about? How do you think about that phenomenon of the blending of flag with faith? I think it's injurious to both because uh, what it does, unfortunately, is um, shrink the uh, the mission of both uh, state and religion and faith because uh, no faith can be in any way summarized by any national politic. At the same time, there are aspects of a national politics that do have to uh, deal with specific concerns of governance of the people, of laws, and, and social order. Uh, the, uh, the, the different faith traditions can, in fact, be a source of, of, of helping them understand uh, their role, but cannot in any way replace it. So I, I think that there is an importance uh, of how uh, they don't, they're not totally separate in the sense that they don't have a dialogue with each other, but they do have their own realms and they bring their own perspective that has to be respected uh, as we go forward. Uh, so I think any, any melding of the two uh, is, both injuri- is injurious to both the state and also faith. A lot of us are approaching this next election with fear and, you know, trepidation. Um, This is actually not a partisan question. It's almost a pastoral question. Uh, What what words would you give to the citizenry of America, regardless of faith tradition, and how to approach this next election, which feels very volatile right now? Well, I think, uh, first of all, let's admit we live in a democracy, so we get the people that, in fact, are elected. We, we, we're the ones who put them in office, so there is a responsibility. The second thing is I would encourage people to get involved in the process, not only in terms of voting, but informing themselves. We have to make sure that we, we understand that just because some information is out there, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily true. Sometimes we forget that there's a difference between the plethora of information that comes to us and real truth, and we have to make sure that we, we dig down and find out what, what is really true, rather than being uh, uh, hit by a tsunami of of all sorts of information from blog posts and social media that is trying to shape public opinion, uh, but in fact many times ignores the truth. So people have to look for where the truth lies. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, this disinformation is incredible. Cardinal Supich, thank you so much for speaking with us today on State of Belief. Well, thank you and greetings to all of your listeners. And uh, uh, let's work together to make sure that uh, we bring peace about in the world and also uh, to, uh, to create a, a culture of real harmony among ourselves. My name is Soraya Dean. I, uh, I represent the Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership. I'm also reading for my public leadership credentials at Howard with Marshall Gans. Uh, who work deeply with the Farm Workers Union. So we are all for the power of the people. Leadership is not about one charismatic leader standing up and proclaiming victory. Leadership for me is really enabling other women. It's about feeling the, the crisis, the situations, the challenges women are facing everywhere in the world and standing up to them. Audrey Lord says, 
uh, another woman's struggle is not necessarily my struggle but until that woman is free i am not free so what we do is we go into communities we we we, we scout leaders not just who are interested but who are committed and we we tell them we teach them how to build power power is organized people yeah. power is organized money and, and talk to me uh, about the the religious aspect of this because in religious communities as we you know as you know often it's men who are in control how does organizing on the ground with women help transform religious communities in a positive way yes yeah, so to begin with this is a very volatile uh, space to be in because men consider any review of what is happening as an attack on not only on them but on the religion so the polarity of the conversation is very situational and it's very specific to a certain country so it is not a one one cap fits all so we go we ask the women what do you want if you feel you are empowered if you feel you are subordinated we tell them raise your voice because dr king reminds us nobody can ride your back unless you bend it so how how far are you bending it it's time to straighten up and when you straighten up straighten up with another group of women tell me about the organization there's like a philosophy and and a way of doing this organizing that you've learned that is it is really effective and specific what's the organization that you affiliate with yeah so i am affiliated with the omnia institute of contextual leadership where we build grassroots movements and i also am the founder of the muslim women speakers movement for a long time we have been trying to raise our voice and what we realize is that women lack power women lack organizing skills so typically we would go into a community i remember so well going into a community in bangladesh where we saw uh, some uh, young girls 14 15 years subjected to child marriage uh, so we brought the mothers and the children and the young girls and we brought some men in the community and we 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 questioned them whether they want this to happen and why this was happening and then from there we go into finding common solutions because in the process we need everybody we need we need all hands on the deck so so not being antagonistic and not polarizing the the communities further is foundational to what we do but our primary goal is to build enable people to build power and that is we recommend highly to do one on ones find out now paul you and i we know we will get up at 4 pm for this cause of justice for women or men of faith so who are your buddies really you know who have the same passion and have the same drive this is critical and and we are at the parliament i want to tell you this story swami vivekananda was uh, scoffed and he was asked what are you talking about peace there cannot be world peace because there's too much division and the swami said give me 100 committed people i don't want the 5000 who are showing up today what is important for us at omnia and for me personally is what are you going to do when you go home yes do you have an organizing statement do you know what the issues are do you know who your people so in the world of organizing we the first question we ask is who are my people not what is the issue you know this for yes thank yeah. you this is wonderful and how can how would you you know you 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 just mentioned it and and we we the same thing with interfaith alliance where we go we we are 
support local committees to figure out like to, to help them organize and it's a, it's not exactly the same but the idea of building power in the face because there is power out there that is trying to uh, exert itself and is doing that very well and it will only be met with with power and the power of invitation I love that you, the way you're, you're saying that what are what's a what's what's one way first of all that people could support your organization and then what would be another thing that they can do our listeners wherever they are uh, to support the ideas behind your work okay so typically gather the people and we'll teach you how to gather invite us and we'll help you transform your community mm, beautiful thank fantastic you. Thank, thank you so much this is a hug. Yeah, oh my God, <laughs> Thank this is you. so fantastic. My name is Shanta Premavardhana. I am uh, president of Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership. Now, we have spoken to Soraya, who is one of the people who has learned and working with you. Tell us more about your institute and, and how it got founded and what's its purpose. Let me begin in 1976. It, uh, the institution began there as an institution of Christian seminaries, a consortium of Christian seminaries, 12 of them, who came together to do something different than what, what seminaries usually do. Here's how I would describe it. Seminaries need to teach what we call received theologies. That is, uh, theologies that were received from centuries ago, great wonderful theologians who used to live in those times but they are not necessarily applicable to today's world and to the concerns and the issues that we deal with today they were children of their context and they spoke to the questions of their context what we have said we said to the seminaries is that we need to get your students to do what we call contextual theology what that means is that the question for theology begins at the context, at the ground level. So when we get the students, we put them out onto the streets of Chicago and said even in the mid dead of winter, <laughs> we put them out in the streets of Chicago and say, go talk to people, find out what they're dealing with, what are their concerns, what are their, their struggles, what are their joys even. And out of those questions arises a new theology, right? In other words, if seminaries were teaching, or we, if you go to seminary to learn a theology, here we would build a theology. And what it leads to is a kind of very relevant theology. Yeah. And I mean, that's like, you know, pressing in on yeah. what is happening. Yeah. And so talk to me a little bit about that, um, that work. So, um, what happened here, just going back to another point that you made, the, the, the primary um, motivator of our work is Paulo Freire. Yes. 1968, he wrote a book called, uh, Brazilian educator wrote a book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And that's where you go into the context so you can provide conscientization, as he called it, <laughs> making people conscious of where their oppression is coming from so that they will be educated for liberation. That's the point. Let me, um, let me close by just asking you, like, if you had one thing that you would wish that everyone at this parliament would realize, <laughs> one thing that they would be made aware of uh, as a result of being here, what would it be? I think people need to know that 
real interfaith relations is about action. It's about doing something. See, we come to these parliaments and we talk. And the word dialogue doesn't help us because it help, it makes us think that it is about talking. And talking is important, don't get me wrong. But if it stops at talking, nothing happens. Here's a good example. When uh, the mayor of Chicago came and spoke to us on the first day in his welcome address, he said something that startled me a bit. This is a new mayor. Okay, I like this guy. I, I hope the best for him. He's a very good man. <laughs> okay. So I don't want anybody to get this wrong. But he said to us, see, you are here to bring justice. You are here. He got very passionate about this. Yeah, he said, you got edu we need education justice. We need transportation justice. We need health care justice. You know, he went on with that litany. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is why we elected you. We elected you to bring justice. And because you are the one who can do it, because you have control of the budgets, you are the one who can implement the programs. Our job is to keep you accountable to that promise. Don't tell us to do justice. You do it and we'll hold your feet to the fire. That, I think that's a really important question. You know, like what is what are the what are these different roles? Because it's not, you know, we don't have the budgets. Right. But we do, we can raise the moral imperative yes. and we can organize power and people exactly. to, to be behind it. Yeah. But you're so but at right. The end yeah. of the day, it's, it it's has the, to, it's, it's the, the people government. who control the power. It's the yeah. government who can do that. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, <laughs> so um, the, the, the problem is, of course, everybody claps now, you know, I mean, for that kind of statement. We are all excited about it. That's the problem in my mind. Because we think that our job is to do the small things like, you know, okay, so let's help the poor. Let's, let's do a, create a homeless shelter, right? All of those things are important. But the, but, but the non-profit world cannot address, does not have the resources to address the enormous problems that we have that the government is the only source that can address those. And so government passes on to the nonprofit sector, and nonprofit sector can do little bits here and there, and it is broken up all over the place. And a lot of us religious leaders sit here and think if we sit, come to a conference and talk and go, that's enough. That is not going to do it. Yeah, I think that's I think that's super important, and it, it's interesting because it is like, you know, this this question of um, you know we think a lot about, and I know you do, like what's the role of religion in democracy. And it's not to take away the power of the state. It's yeah. not to, you know, it's yeah. not to have the state or the government export all the things that have to do with good, doing good for the people. Because actually government should be for the right. people, by the right. people. Right. Um, uh, but it is, we do have a vision. And we can, if we have a shared vision, a shared power, um, and, and government can help implement that vision, then that can be very beautiful. So that's so important. This is the first of many conversations, Shanta, that we're going to have. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much for oh, being on State I'm of... I'm very glad. I'm very glad. I'm a fan of Interfaith Alliance, so I'm, I'm glad to do this. We'll take another break now and be back with more conversations from Chicago recorded at the Parliament of the World's Religions. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. State of Belief Radio, twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network.
911, what's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken and people are dying. Welcome to Code Whack, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code Whack, how are corporate health insurers using artificial intelligence to step up their claims denials? And what's being done to out some of the bad actors in Medicare Advantage? To find out, we spoke to Diane Archer, founder and president of Just Care USA, an independent digital media hub covering health and financial issues facing boomers and their families. We're focused heavily on outing the bad actors in Medicare Advantage, not knowing how many of them are bad actors, but knowing from the Office of the Inspector General that there is this widespread and persistent inappropriate delays and denials of care in the Medicare Advantage program. We want we want the government to name names. We want escalating penalties for insurers that are engaged in these bad acts, culminating in the cancellation of their contracts. We want to make sure that nobody is signing up for a Medicare Advantage plan that endangers their health and well-being or puts their life at risk. And right now, we have every reason to believe that some, if not the majority of Medicare Advantage plans are a risky proposition for people with Medicare. Get the full Code Wax story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code Wax wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy. Whether you're listening to Leslie Marshall each Tuesday through Friday or Brad Bannon each Monday, you can hear them from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. Here's a sample of what you'll hear. Scott Paul. Scott is president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. We were driving down the street, my kids and I, and they were putting in some new like townhouses or something. And whenever you see growth, it's good. Cause you know, when there's growth, there's jobs, you know, when there's growth, there's money, you know, when there's growth, you know, it enables people to purchase, you know, I'm not sure if they're for rent or, you know, for sale, but what I did see on the side. And the reason I say that is my kids said, what are those? And they were just solar panel after solar panel after solar panel. Right. In addition to that, we went on vacation in Hawaii, uh, but when I was on um, Kauai for vacation, mm-hmm. solar panels everywhere. Yeah. Again, kids asked me, what are those? Because they look different in different places and they can be put different places. They can be put on roof. They can be put on the ground, you know, as they were in Hawaii pointed up. Reflecting on the absolute, and I quote, 180 degree turn that the U.S. domestic solar manufacturing industry has taken over the past 12 months. I have friends that are getting solar, you know, put on, on their houses. Yeah. You know, I have neighbors that that are doing it. We're we're going to be doing it. It's a little tricky for us because we live in a high fire zone with tile roof. So we have some more restrictions. We can't just call up and have it done. Um, but let, let's talk about that. One, has it been the 180 degree turn and why? Because this was poo-pooed upon, especially by those who like to poo-poo upon climate change, environmental issues, um, 
this is a booming industry and it's only going to get bigger and it's awesome for job creation. It's awesome for consumers as well. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is true. Uh, true fact. You know, it would get the zero Pinocchios on the uh, Glenn Kessler, you know, uh, Washington Post scale there. Um, and, and you saw it with your own eyes. I'll share an anecdote, too. I did like a 40 day cross country road trip um, with with my teenage sons. And um, we spent a lot of time looking out windows, uh, and I could not believe the number of utility-scale solar farms that we saw along the way. It's like that all over. We saw them uh, in Texas, uh, in New Mexico, um, in Arizona, in Nevada, um, in Idaho, and all you know, all along the way back. It was it was really stunning to see all of that. Again, that's Leslie Marshall every Tuesday through Friday and Brad Bannon every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. This is State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. Let's get back to my time at the 2023 convening of the Parliament of the World's Religions in Chicago. All right, we are here with Wendy Goldberg from the Tri-Faith Initiative, which is an incredible organization in Omaha, Nebraska. Wendy, welcome to State of Belief. Thank you, glad to be here. All right, so, so tell us what the uh, Tri-Faith Initiative is. Um, so our initiative grew out of 9-11, a response where in Omaha, Nebraska, a couple of people of faith showed up at a mosque to say no harm should come to this mosque because of um, acts that happened from other people who use the same vocabulary. And from there, some potlucks and picnics happened, and then the Reformed Jewish community, Temple Israel Synagogue, was looking for a new home. The, the Reformed congregation was established in Omaha in 1871. So we have a really long history of being wow. in relationship with the religious other. We actually have documentation of being in relationship with Standing Bear. Oh, wow. Um, and so this is not new that the Reformed Jewish congregation would come to say, we want to build a neighborhood. We want to know um, who our neighbors would be in a new location for our congregation. So we invited some of the Muslim community to look for land with us. And if some Jews and Muslims are going to get together, we probably should invite some Christians. We went to the archdiocese first, and it ended up that that wasn't the right project for them. The Episcopal Diocese walked with us on the journey for nine years, and ultimately uh, United Church Church of Christ congregation joined us and in um, we purchased land that was previously a country club exclusively for Jews that the business model failed and that uh, I, I should mention that it was a country club for Jews because Jews were not allowed in other country clubs exactly. you know so so there was a history interestingly of religion religious exclusion and inclusion kind of in the in the land in a way a hundred percent and so uh, we were able to purchase land when this uh, land went for sale, 38 acres, four uh, parcels, and it was a, it's a project in autonomy. These four congregate, three congregations and an interfaith organization that has now become the Tri-Faith Initiative each purchased a parcel of land that is adjacent to each other, each fundraised their own money, um, ending in $70 million. 
What's really interesting about everybody fundraising their own money is that they had to invest. It wasn't just like, here, here's something given to you, like try to make it work. We're going to invest actually money from our community and we're going to, we're going to do this for ourselves because we see the worth in it. Right. And so a, a part of that that's interesting to me is we built bricks and mortar, we raised money, but what we really built was trust. So we met once a month and said to each other, how might we support each other in our independent need to sustain a congregation independent of this project, right? What I need in partners from Temple Israel Countryside Community Church and the American Muslim Institute is a vibrant congregation, right? And fast forward, we were able to raise the money, build the buildings, but who could have known 20 years ago that we would be facing a rise of religious nationalism, that our collective would address some needs in a shifting religious landscape that my children are not affiliated with a congregation. Many kids aren't, but they're really inspired by this idea of collaborative model where we not just stand around a bridge and hold hands and say, kumbaya, we're all Abrahamic, we love each other. We're taking it even further to say what we value is our unique differences and that we want to build a world that has space for us to be different and that religious pluralism can thrive. So you're here at the Parliament of the World Religions uh, in Chicago. What do you hope that people will learn from the model of the Tri-Faith Initiative? And also, um, what are you listening for uh, as, um, as you spend the next four days here at the Parliament? So I'm, I'm hoping that um, from witnessing the lessons that we have gained in our experiment, in, in our Petri dish in Omaha, Nebraska, that people will honor autonomy that people will be brave and curious about the religious other, um, and that people will think differently about religious identity, that there's no one person who speaks on behalf of any one religious tradition, um, and that sometimes the hard work is within our religious traditions, mm -hmm. the intra-work within the Christian community, with what, who, who gets to define Christianity. Who gets? I, I think that's really in question right this minute. Who gets to have the word? Um, are those gendered issues? Are those issues of uh, sexual orientation? Are those the things that are going to pull us apart? Or are we actually going to stand up uh, and learn how to listen to each other and be at the table together and disagree with respect? Wendy Goldberg is the director of the Tri-Faith Initiative. Wendy, thank you so much for being with me on this State of Belief. Thank you. I am here with Joshua Seftel, Oscar-nominated filmmaker who is screening Stranger at the Gate here at Parliament of the Religions. Joshua, welcome to the State of Belief. Hi, Paul. Good to be here. So, Joshua, you are a filmmaker who is inspired by your faith, by your beliefs, by your background, to tell stories that actually aren't necessarily about your own community, but are about other communities and how they intersect with the world. T tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into filmmaking, and the particular storytelling that you've dedicated so much of your life to. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I, um, I grew up in upstate New York, and I was, grew up Jewish in a, a community that didn't have a lot of Jews. 
So I was always, you know, on the outside a little bit. And growing up, uh, my father was a physician and he would entertain people at our house a lot. And we had this one room in our house that was, uh, as kids, we weren't even allowed to go in there. It was the special room for entertaining. And it had a yellow shag carpet that um, my mom had a rake that she would use to rake the carpet to make sure it was fluffy and looked good. And occasionally, you know, maybe once a month, once every two months, we'd have people over. And it was usually the, um, the fellow physicians, uh, my dad's colleagues. And I would look in the room on those nights and it was filled with people from all over the world because they were the physicians and doctors who had come to the United States uh, to care for people. And so, we, you know, you look in that room, you'd see people in saris, you'd see people uh, wearing hijab, uh, you'd see people of all different shades and religions. And that's what I grew up with, you know, uh, uh, being around those people. And there was a, a warmth and, um, and my, I think my parents really liked me to see that. Meanwhile, in that same room, uh, probably around when I was about nine, one morning I woke up and, and I looked in that room and there was a rock in the middle of the floor about the size of a brick and on the floor was glass shattered all over and the bay window in that room had been shattered someone threw a rock through a window and I immediately knew what it was I, you know it was anti-semitism and uh, you know I, I'd been facing it at school kids calling me names um, kids throwing pennies at me um, to see if I would bend over to pick them up you know, to prove that to them, to prove that Jews are cheap. Uh, and so um, I had these two things going on at the same time in this room, you know, this exposure to all this, you know, this diversity and then this exposure to adversity and discrimination. And, um, and those two things, I think, came together in the work I do, um, where I'm really interested in telling stories that stand up to um, and shatter stereotypes. Um, and they don't have to necessarily be stories about being Jewish. They, they're stories about being Muslim. They're stories about being an immigrant. Uh, there are all kinds of stories that I think are important to tell, that tell, tell the stories of underdogs in, in our society. That's, that's what I'm drawn to. It's in, such a, a powerful story and such a vivid story. Um, how have you seen the experience of Muslims changing, the experience of Jews changing in America? How do you, what's the, where are we at with um, religion in America right now? Um, you know, it seems like I, t I had a chance to talk to uh, Representative Jamie Raskin, and he says we like we have these two different visions that are in a race in America to figure out like who's going to win. And uh, I'm just curious what you're seeing as someone who is really on the ground with stories. Um, how how are you, how are you interpreting this moment we're in in American history and religious pluralism? Well, what, from what you're saying about what Representative Raskin. Um, described that sounds very accurate to me because I've seen what seem to be improvements. I mean, we've been making these films since 2015 and I've been listening to these stories and reporting on them. And it, it seems like in some ways 
the Islamophobia, and hatred of Muslim people in this country has improved a bit. I feel like I, I, I've seen that a bit. But at the same time, you hear that hate crimes are on the rise and anti-Semitism is on the rise and, uh, you know, hate toward Muslims is on the rise. So I do think there's a push and a pull. And I, I feel like it's I always think of it as whack-a-mole. You know, it's like it's never going to go away. No matter how many films we make, no matter how much we change the way we think, there's always going to be um, discrimination and hate crimes, and we just have to find ways to stamp it out and keep trying to educate people so that um, we keep moving in the right direction. Yeah, I, I think that that's right. I, I think whack-a-mole feels um, it, it feels like how it feels, and yet it, you know, if I think about there there can be progress. So I hope I hope that we we also like remember that things can get better. But it doesn't mean that nothing is permanent and it has to continually get effort. And uh, so Malala was involved in this latest film. How did that happen? And what, you know, what was the what was her uh, involvement in this in your film uh, Stranger at the Gate? Sure. Yeah. Malala was our executive producer on Stranger at the Gate. And we when we were um, making the film, we realized that we had this a story that was powerful, that that could be. Um, that could move the needle, maybe. You know, that's our, that was our hope, because it's a story about a um, white supremacist who hates Muslims, who goes through a change, and he comes out the other side, and be and actually, spoiler spoiler alert, he converts to Islam from being someone who's filled with hate toward Muslims. Joshua Seftel, Oscar nominated filmmaker of A Stranger at the Gate here at Parliament of the Religions. Thank you for being with me on The State of Belief. Thanks, Paul. It's a pleasure. Okay, I am outside, actually on a beautiful day, outside a big white tent, um, and people are streaming in from every background, uh, every religion, every race, coming from the Parliament of the World's Religions to Langar. I am a Sukhbir Singh. I'm the event organizer on behalf of my chairman, Pai Mahinda Singh. And we have come all the way from uh, London, uh, Birmingham, UK, to serve free food, which we call Langar. This is on, on behalf of not only the Sikh community in uh, UK, it's also on all the Sikh communities from North America. We have come to amalgamated and we have come together to serve Langar free of charge, free food to all the delegates of the Parliament World Religions. What is the principle behind Langar um, that actually is part of the Sikh uh, tradition? The principle behind Langar is a very, sh very short story. Guru Nanak, the founder of the Sikh faith, his father gave him 20 rupees at that time. It was a lot of money, millions of dollars to start a business because this is why people survived having the small businesses. And then Guru Nanak uh, went to look for a business. Then on the way, he saw some people, uh, some holy people who were hungry, who didn't have good clothes on. So he spent all the money to buy food provisions and feed them and give them good clothes. From that day, the, uh, the institution of Langar was born. So the Langar, the meaning of Langar is that the first thing that we as individuals should do as families, as communities, as governments, is to make sure that there's no one goes hungry in the world. Now, governments are not doing their job. 
lot of people are going, a lot of people are dying without they having got food. This this is not acceptable. This langar is just a sort that one community can uh, feed everybody else coming together. And I will say this is not the Sikh langar because a lot of people, the delegates, they have come and given cash donations. So we are buying fruit with that donations. It's a langar is from everybody for everybody. If the government start doing that, there will be no one hungry. It's, 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 a, it's a shame people are dying hungry from because they haven't got enough food. I, I remember seeing um, people at the Langar in Barcelona moving their lips while they were serving. And uh, someone explained to me that this was part of it, that this is also an yeah. act of prayer. Langar, see, the, the, the Langar begins with earning honest living, first of all. Now, earning, we do all sorts of occupations, but during our occupation, that uh, the money that we earn only becomes good if we are reciting the name of the God. Now we recite Waiguru Waiguru, and all communities have their own word for God. It is okay. There's no. It's not not that. So when we recite those, uh, this must be earning honest earnings uh, from which we buy provisions. And while we make food, we recite the name of the God. It is the the element of God which uh, becomes unlimited. If I feed or you feed, okay, it'll be somewhat limited. But once we add the island of God into it, the uh, the, the earning of the money, uh, cooking of the food, and add the element of God, it becomes unlimited. Yeah. Whether hundred people turn up or ten thousand, we don't. You know, it's very organized. If you organize your family's wedding or something, to organize even for hundred people, you know, you got to be very very spare. Here, we don't know where the money is coming. We don't know where the provisions are coming. <laughs> Uh, whether 5,000 people come, 10,000 people, the same to us because the element of God is now in Langar and He is doing the work. Uh -huh. Do you have any sense of how many people? It could, I mean, it's, people are streaming in here. I wish you, my listeners, could yeah, hear I because it's. 7,000 people have registered for the parliament. I think uh, maybe 10% uh, might be busy in other sessions. I think about 6,500 would come get. And when they say, the West people say, no, no such thing as a free uh, free lunch, there is something like free lunch. <laughs> Guru Nanak provided that there's something like a free, this is a free lunch it's for a, everybody. Well, it's a free lunch, uh, but with a great deal of uh, devotion and love, and yes, I thank you so much for this it. This time what we are doing, we are inviting other communities to sing the praises of the Lord while we're eating, because everybody has got their own devotion to God. We want to welcome that. Yeah, it's beautiful. I can hear a drumming in the background yeah. and uh, and it's just a beautiful, peaceful scene coming in and out. So thank you so much. Uh, thank you. You must have Langar now. Thank you. So we go. <laughs> the address you're about to hear was given at the plenary session that was addressing the crisis of authoritarian that is rising around the world. I was in front of thousands of individuals of all different backgrounds, faith, traditions, races, nationalities who are coming together to figure out what we can do as a community to fight back against authoritarianism in all its forms. It is an honor to be with you here at the Parliament of the World's Religions. I come to this podium raised in an interfaith family, led by an interfaith heart and having spent the last 25 years serving as a Christian minister, largely in interfaith settings and promoting interfaith work. As I look out at this amazing gathering of beautiful souls, I have to ask, what are we doing here?
each of us comes guided by our own interests to learn more about other traditions, to build bridges, to find common ground, to share the richness of our spiritual practice. These are some of the central activities of the interfaith work since the parliament began. However, when I look at all of you who come not only as yourselves, but also represent hundreds, thousands, perhaps even millions of others in places both far and near, I see power. The power of people, the power of ideas, the organizational, spiritual, and moral power of religion that the world needs to meet the crisis that we face. And what is that crisis? Across the world, authoritarian movements are gaining control. They are headed by would-be dictators. But we must also acknowledge that too often they are legitimized and sanctified by religious leaders consolidating their own power for their own tradition and restricting the religious, social, and political liberty of those who are different and therefore labeled in their own country as the other with second and third class status. Our particular threat in the United States is white Christian nationalism that claims the mantle of both faith and flag, but at its core is a crusade for power that betrays our nation and degrades my faith. They are guided by a Christian and white supremacist narrative that defines who can be a true American, a true Christian, and who really belongs in the country. As we are holding this parliament, Christian nationalists are attacking churches that do not agree with them. They are attempting to rewrite our history. They are banning our books. They are restricting voting and women's rights and targeting minority faiths. I come to this parliament with a particular vantage point. As a gay man who is married to my husband and we have two precious children, my own family is a target. As books about LGBT people are among those that are most banned in this nation, not saying gay has become the law of the land in Florida. And there are millions of my fellow Americans who do not believe I should be married or have children or even exist. Recently, the Supreme Court in the United States has ruled that people who provide services to the public can turn my family away. And here's the kicker. People point to the religious beliefs for the inspiration and rationale behind these attacks. Worse, there are right-wing activists from different faiths who have traditionally attacked one another who are now banding together to target me and my family and other LGBTQ people under the misuse of the principles of religious freedom. To which I respond, whose religion and whose freedom? So I ask again, what are we doing here?
To do interfaith work is by definition to perform the radical act of refusing to insist on our own way, even as our own traditions might invite us to such an impulse. Instead, the very genesis of the interfaith movement is to publicly declare that we will refrain from acting on those dogmas within each of our traditions that continues to provide a rationale to hate and to murder one another. The real difference among religions today is not between traditions, but how we understand our religion's mandate to act in the world. Does our tradition inspire us to celebrate or to discriminate? Do our beliefs prompt us to liberate or subjugate? Will we interpret our scripture and teachings in such a way that our religion is a bridge or a bludgeon? What are we doing here? Parliament of the World's Religions, we are here to love one another and to love the world. We are here to collectively and politically and publicly say no to the fascists of our time, and we will be guided by the ethos and the tactic of love that has guided so many great movements in the past. Gandhi, King, Mandela, Malala, and so many others across the world, each of them tapped into the deepest wells of the spirit and practiced a powerful, nonviolent resistance against the forces of cruelty and tyranny. Parliament of the world's religions, let us join together in a love that refuses to hate, a love that diffuses lies, a love that targets no one, a love that casts a vision for a future in which everyone has dignity and worth. Parliament of the world's religions, let us join together with a love that resists the fist with an open hand, that reaches to our neighbors for their hand and creates an ever-expanding circle of diverse people, faiths, races, backgrounds, and makes the irresistible invitation Join us. Together we will be powerful. Together we will meet this global crisis of authoritarianism. Together we will be guided by love. Together we will win. Thank you so much. And that's all the time we have for this week's State of Belief. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. We need your help keeping State of Belief going. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with family and friends. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part, both on and off the air. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. 
The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.